going, everybody? Welcome to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jensen. Tim, how's it going, sir? Going pretty good, and uh, I'm sure you're going to go on all about it, but I'm pretty excited for uh, what we're about to do here today. Absolutely, man, because, and I know for the last couple of days, like, I've been super excited, and I can't, couldn't wait to get this interview started. Since starting this podcast three years ago, we've gotten the opportunity to talk with some high-profile people, including former NHLer Jamie McLennan and longtime Sens reporter Ian Mendez. Our guest today is without question the most significant individual we have ever gotten to chat with for the podcast. Our guest today is a successful entrepreneur and real estate broker slash developer in the city of Ottawa. He has served as an entrepreneur in residence at the Telfer School of Management at the University of Ottawa. He is also a published author and former sports owner, serving as part owner and chairman of the now defunct Ottawa Rough Riders of the Canadian Football League, as well as part of the advisory board for the Ontario Hockey League's Ottawa 67s. For his contributions with Ottawa sports franchises, he was inducted into the Ottawa Sports Hall of Fame in 2012. With all of his accomplishments, though, he will be best remembered for his role in the National Hockey League's return to the city in Ottawa in 1992 as founder of the modern-day Ottawa Senators. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us from our nation's capital of Ottawa, Ontario, the founder of your Ottawa Senators, our guest, Dr. Bruce Firestone. Bruce, how's it going? Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Tim. I'm glad to be on the podcast with you guys and to hockey fans and sports fans, especially now in, a, in the era of COVID-19. Uh, uh, you know, not, not much to cheer for. No, it's definitely been, but especially with the last couple of years of Senators hockey, it's really hasn't given us a lot to cheer about. But, you know, with the upcoming draft and the future looking so bright, better days are ahead. Yeah, we, we hope so, uh, uh, for sure. You know, one of the things about the current state of the Ottawa Senators, uh, apart from the fact that uh, the NHL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball are not playing right now, is that um, uh, there's a bit of unease, I think, in the fan base. So there's kind of a disconnect between the team and the fans. And that is the first time, uh, Taylor, Tim, that that's happened in the history of the modern-day uh, Ottawa Senators. For sure. Yeah, and it, as a fan of the Senators really a lot of sports times I think it might be one of the first times I've kind of seen it in a Canadian team yeah I, I think that's right Tim uh, you know if you look at it uh, certainly uh, from the time that we announced it, and I think it was 1987 so a long time ago that we're going to bring back the Ottawa Senators a team that hadn't played in the NHL since 1933 or 34 when uh, they went out of business due to the Great Depression uh, it, you know there was a lot of excitement and it, it just built and built and built until finally we got an expansion franchise in December of 1990 and they started play in October of 1992 there was an incredibly intense love affair between the team and the fans it was certainly as intense a love affair as, as exists anywhere in the National League uh, but uh, in the last uh, a couple of years anyway that that love affair has certainly cooled so Bruce before we head into the interview now given that we are in the middle of the COVID pandemic we got to ask right off the top how have you and your family been holding up during the pandemic you know we, we're fine you know I mean for, for people who are my age, I'm in my late 60s now, for people my age, we have to be really cautious about it, but uh, certainly all of my friends and colleagues and clients, uh, you know, totally respect the need for isolation, and so, so far, myself, uh, my wife, uh, my five kids, my grandsons are, are fine, uh, but my heart goes out to, you know, we're losing today, uh, maybe the greatest generation that ever lived, you know, my father, your grandfather, uh, your grandmother, 
uh, my mother, that generation, you know, they, they took us from, you know, literally horse and buggy in the early 1900s to, to the moon in, in the 1960s. They, they brought about all these wonderful computers and services that we all sort of almost take for granted today, the Internet, of course, and all the other uh, things that go with it. And, and those people are really, really suffering now. They're dying by the tens of thousands across the, the world. And it, it's, a, it's a, a very, very tough time, not to mention the fact that 7.2 million Canadians are on the CERB benefit, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, and 40 million Americans are unemployed. So we're in some for really tough times. For sure, and we haven't seen half of it, uh, given that uh, mortgages aren't forgiven, they're deferred. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And, and you know, I, I actually did a, a speech, uh, you know, obviously on, on Zoom or Skype, you can do that sort of thing, not not in, in person. But I did a, a speech for a group, and, and I, I actually went back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, which was the early 1700s, and I could not find another example of major economies like China, uh, like the United States, like Canada, contracting by 40% in three months. Uh, China's economy, I think, uh, GDP decreased by 40% in the first quarter of 2020. And I think Canada and the United States are not far behind. And even in the Great Depression of the 1930s, uh, Canada, Germany, and uh, the United States, they did suffer a 40% decrease in industrial production, but that took almost four years. Uh, this is happening in three months. That's, that, I think, is unprecedented. Well, it's interesting because like, even before the Industrial Revolution, we did do some sorts of isolation, but never at this scale. And uh, I think the closest thing we really saw was the cholera riots of the 1830s. Yeah, I, 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 you know, and I'm old enough to remember, you know, uh, the polio epidemic of the 50s and 60s, and, and you know, my parents wouldn't let me go to uh, any any places where large numbers of people were gathering because, you know, uh, children were, were were contracting polio, and that was a devastating disease. If you contracted it as a child, it, it if it didn't kill you, it certainly. Uh, uh, you know, uh, impacted the rest of your life. So, so we, we have been through pandemics before, uh, but I have never, I, I just couldn't find another example where major economies were contracting at the, uh, contracting at the, you know, the, the rate that we're seeing. So Bruce, before embarking on bringing the National Hockey League back to Ottawa, you attended and received a Bachelor of Civil Engineering from McGill University in Montreal, later traveling to Australia to attend the University of New South Wales and the Australian National University, where you would later receive a Master of Engineering Science and a PhD in Urban Economics, respectively. What sparked your interest in pursuing a career in real estate development, and overall, how did you enjoy your time attending those universities? Well, uh, you know, I was at McGill at a very interesting time. It was, uh, 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 you know, really the, the start of uh, Quebec becoming its own nation. You know, a lot of Canadians, uh, you know, outside of Quebec, maybe if you haven't lived there, might not really grasp just how different the province is and, and how important it was for, for the people who live there, many of them, to protect their language and, and culture. So, so uh, you know, it was a very interesting time to live in Montreal, to go to the university. There was a lot of political agitation. And, you know, some of the rioting that we're seeing in the United States, we had that here in Canada, at least in Montreal, certainly around where I, I lived. It's, people were not happy in Quebec uh, that they felt their language was under threat. So, so there was a lot of political uncertainty. Uh, you guys are, I, I think, much too young to remember uh, the first Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, you know, facing down the FLQ uh, and and uh, the murder of uh, at least one cabinet minister in, in Quebec and uh, the, the declaration of what really amounts to martial law. And I can remember um, 
going up on, on Mount Royal in downtown Montreal. Uh, the army had moved into Montreal and basically occupied the city. And, you know, it was a it was a time of flux. And even before that, I had spent time in California, the University of California at Santa Cruz, which is about an hour south of Berkeley. The, the, the year was 1969. You can imagine, if you've ever seen any films of that time, the tremendous uh, uh, opposition amongst young people uh, to the Vietnam War. So I, I was fairly involved in, in sort of uh, those kinds of activities, at least on the periphery, and I, I got a real taste of what it's like to see the kinds of uh, unrest that we're seeing today. In doing research for this interview, I was actually quite fascinated in learning how the initial idea for the Bring the Senators Back campaign came to be. Now, from what I understand, during a weekly terrace meeting in 1987, the initial idea for the NHL's return to Ottawa was tabled by a gentleman named Duncan McDonald after reading it in the Ottawa Citizens Sports section about expansion plans in the 1990s. Following this, I understand that you had sat on the idea until you had accepted that Ottawa was ready again to support a franchise. A decision was made to launch the bid through Terrace Investments as part of the development plan. And then following a game of shitty hockey, you mentioned your plan to a couple of executives named Randy Sexton and Cyril Leader. What kind of a reaction did you receive from Randy and Cyril regarding your plan? And overall, what kind of exception, exception did you get about the bid? Well, what happened was, um, you know, I was living in Australia, uh, my wife and I, you know, we have five kids today, but uh, back then we only had one, and uh, our oldest boy was born in Australia. I was at the Australian National University uh, doing my PhD, and, and uh, you know, quite happy. I was on track to become a university professor. Probably that's what I'm best suited for. And uh, my dad came to see me, wanted to see his new grandson. He was living here in Ottawa. I was living in Canberra. And uh, uh, Dad uh, told me that his business in Ottawa was not doing very well. He was in the real estate business. And he said, Bruce, can you come back? This is 1983, I think. Uh, just for six months and, and help me out because, uh, you know, I need some help. Uh, so I, I consulted with my wife and uh, she said, okay. And I came back to Canada and I, uh, I, I found that my dad had invested in, I think there were five or six roller disco rinks. I don't know. You guys probably don't even know what a roller disco rink is. Uh, I think it's somewhere where you wear a polyester suit. <laughs> That's pretty close. So, um, so I, I didn't know. I mean, I, I don't even know if they had disco music in Australia. I didn't know anything about it. So I came back to Ottawa and uh, I went to one of these places. I rented a pair of roller skates. And what happens, uh, uh, Tim, is you, you put your roller skates on and you, you, you skate in circles. There's like uh, a disco ball, you know, disco lights and Donna Summer's music is playing. And then after a few minutes, uh, the music stops, and so everybody stops, so I stop. And then the music starts, and the lights get going, but this time you have to skate in the opposite direction, right? So you go clockwise, you go counterclockwise. It was incredibly boring. And uh, so I, I come off the, you know, I, I did it for oh, 50 or 60 minutes. I, I came off uh, the, the rink, and I, I took my roller skates off. And, and the next day, I talked to the guys that my dad was in partnership with, and I said, I'll tell you what, guys, I'll trade you the half of the real estate that you own for the half of the operating business that we own. And they were older than me, and they said, oh, Bruce, you're a young guy. You know, it's my 20s. You don't really know what you're talking about. The roller disco business is a cash cow. We'd be taking advantage. I said, no, nah, it's okay. You, I don't know anything about roller disco, but I know a little bit about real estate. You you have the operating company. We'll keep the real estate. And they agreed, and they thought they were taking advantage. Wait, 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 wait. They yeah. let you trade the flow for the stock? Uh, pretty much. 
Jesus <laughs> Christ. Yeah. Anyway, so so uh, eighteen months later, the the roller disco fad just died. You couldn't pay a teenager to go to these places. You know, when when teens change their minds about something, that's it. It's done. So they went bankrupt, and we ended up owning these six huge uh, warehouses. You know, beautifully uh, fit up with uh, you know. Uh, wood floor that you could, you know, you could polish to a, the nth degree, and it was just the beginning of the tech boom in Ottawa, and it was uh, the time when there was a thing called management by wandering around. That was a big uh, management theory that if you were the, uh, you know, executive director or the president, CEO, whatever, chief operating officer, you wanted everybody, you know, sort of on one level where you could just kind of wander around and manage by wandering around, MBWA. And by the way, when I became, uh, when I was on the board of governors of the National Hockey League about 10 years later, uh, I said to Gary Bettman the same thing. At that time, the uh, NHL had major offices in Montreal and two major offices in New York and one in Toronto, at least four. And I said to Gary, you know, you've got to bring them all together. I mean, I'm, I'm a proud Canadian for sure, but, you know, uh, you, you want to be in one location because the theory is that the most productive meetings are the ones that kind of happen by happenstance. You know, you, you meet somebody at the water cooler or the photocopier. Oh, hey, Tim, you know, Taylor, I meant to tell you, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, so those six warehouses were within a few months were filled up with uh, tech companies paying really good rents. And I learned the magic of real estate, which is you increase the uh, revenues for the projects that you own, whether they're residential or they're commercial doesn't really matter up goes the value you can refinance reappraise take some money out tax-free and then go out and buy some more stuff so that's what i did and then uh, after a few years of, of building a, a bit of a real estate empire you've got to remember when i took over that business maybe our first year revenues guys were three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year so it was a really small company but by eight or nine years later we were doing about 120 million in, in sales the problem though was that other people like very well capitalized uh, 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 firms like pension funds, insurance companies, REITs, real estate investment trusts, and others were entering the business with very low cost of funds. So it'd be like the three of us going and, uh, I don't know, challenging Usain Bolt to a race. He's probably going to beat us, right? These guys had a very low cost of funds. We were paying much, much higher interest rates. So we had to pivot. And the question was to pivot to what? So I am going to answer your question. And what we decided to pivot to was one of two things. We were either going to go into the mini storage business or we're going to go and buy 600 acres of land, uh, bid for an NHL expansion franchise, put it in the middle of the property, drive up the value of the land, sell off the 500 acres we didn't need, make a bunch of money, pay for the expansion for franchise, and life would be good. So when I talked to Randy Sexton and Cyril Leader after we had a pickup hockey game, and I said, these are my two ideas, Randy, who is uh, an MBA from Clarkson in the States and a hockey guy, immediately let's go after the, the NHL expansion franchise. And the first question from Cyril, who's a chartered accountant, was how much is it going to cost? <laughs> well, it's funny, and I was reading through your book, and the one thing that I noticed talk, when I was reading about Cyril Leader and his attitude towards the hockey team being more cautious, that seems like a very kind of Canadian thing to do, is that yeah. we don't run on emotion, we run more on logic more than anything. Is that something that you would agree with? Oh, well, Cyril is very, very logical. You know, he, he was uh, with me at Terrace Investments Limited and then with the Ottawa Centers for 35 years until Mr. Melnick fired him. Well, I wonder how much of it's logic versus risk aversion. Well, it's, it's a bit of both. Uh, you know, Canadians are very cautious, and, and we're right to be cautious because, um, 
you, you know, if you go to the smallest town, Tim, the, the smallest little town you can find in the United States, you're going to find a couple of billionaires there. I mean, it's just incredible the amount of money that the American economy is producing, especially if you're in the top 1% or 0.1%. Uh, but in, in Canada, and Australia is very similar, and I think New Zealand as well, you know, uh, uh, things, uh, money is more evenly distributed, and uh, but it also means that we just don't have as many rich people. Mm-hmm. Following your decision to put in an expansion bid, Terrace Investments publicly announced for the first time their intentions in reviving the Ottawa Senators by way of expansion in June 1989. You had obtained permission to use the name from the descendants of Tommy Gorman, who was the owner of the original Senators and the 1950 Senior Hockey Club, as well as settled with the owners of the Ottawa Junior Senators prior to the announcement. One thing that a younger generation of fans may not realize regarding the bid itself was that it was considered a long shot given Ottawa's market size, the lack of a new arena, and the fact it was going up against a heavily favored bid from the city of Hamilton. Despite its long shot status, how much faith did you have in the Senator's bid, and did you ever think that it would have beaten out the bid from Hamilton? Well, uh, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you know, uh, entrepreneurs don't die, they just say they're life challenged. You know, Entrepreneurs are the kind of people who, who are not easily dissuaded, uh, they're not easily discouraged, and certainly I would fit into that category. And, you know, the, the, the team around me, were we were very young. I was in my late 30s in Serial Leader and, and, and Randy Sexton and the rest of our group were in their late 20s or early 30s. So it was a very young group, and we would have done almost anything to get the, 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 the franchise. You know, when we went down to Palm Beach to... Uh, to, uh, uh, to to you know to the winter meetings that the National League was holding that year that would have been December of 1990. Um, we, we took 120 people down to Palm Beach with us. We had the fire, Ottawa Fire Department marching band. You know we had like we had incredible followers uh, come down there, including of course you know Frank Finnegan from the uh, Sens days in, in the in the 20s and 30s. He was with us with uh, like I said 120 uh, other people, and we plastered that. The entire town, you couldn't take a, a taxi cab, you couldn't go in an elevator without seeing a Bring Back the Ottawa Senator sticker. So we wanted to make sure that the Board of Governors uh, heard our voices and heard the passion of the fans. And in terms of market size, you know, even back then, uh, you, you know, Canadian uh, cities might be smaller and, and not as rich as American cities, but the percentage of the population that are rabid hockey fans is much higher than, say, Los Angeles. And, and uh, so even though LA is obviously much, much, much bigger and much wealthier than, than, say, Ottawa is, or for that matter, Calgary, or Duncan, B.C., I might add, uh, <laughs> you know, even, even so, uh, there are a lot of hockey fans in, in, in Ottawa. And, you know, I have said publicly now for more than uh, 20 years, uh, I even said it uh, uh, in 1990 at the NHL Winter Meetings, that I think Canada should have more NHL teams. You know, we don't have a team in Quebec City. We don't have a team in Hamilton, and I think we should. Well, I know I was talking to one of our friends for the podcast who lives in, in southern Ontario, and we were talking about Ottawa getting the team over Hamilton, and he was saying to me, economically, it actually... In retrospect, nowadays looking at it, it makes more sense Ottawa got it over Hamilton given that the steel industry ended up falling apart and all the Ford plants in Southern Ontario closed. Looking back, was that something that I don't think any of us could have really seen that happening? Well, you know, 
I, th- I think the real turning point for, for us was the fact that the fact that we had only a very small arena at that time, the Ottawa Civic Center, uh, which could seat ten or 12,000 people. We didn't have a modern NHL-caliber arena. Actually, it worked in our favor, Taylor. Uh, it, it, what, what happened was uh, the Cops Coliseum, as it was called at that time in Hamilton, could seat 18,000 people, so that was certainly a, a plus. But it didn't have a, a lot of the amenities that the NHL at that time was looking for in terms of private suites and signage and sponsorship and other revenue streams. So what we did was we looked, Randy and Cyril and I and others, we looked at about 30 different arenas and stadiums, and I wanted to hire uh, an architect designer uh, that had not built stadiums before or or arenas before or not very many of them. And one of the things that uh, we did was we went to Detroit and we saw what uh, Gino Rossetti, the architect of record for the Palace of Auburn Hills, where the Pistons, the Detroit Pistons play. And and, uh, I talked to Gino and he had only ever done uh, at that time one arena and it was that one, the Palace. And it it had uh, rows of suites. And that was a real fundamental change in the economics of NHL hockey, which is even to this day very dependent on television, sorry, excuse me, on uh, bums in the seats. That's what they literally call it, bims. Uh, People, you know, paying season tickets. It's not like the NBA or the National Football League, which have massive, massive television contracts. And so what Gino had done is he had revolutionized the economics. And most of the arenas in the NHL at that time were like the old Chicago Stadium, which or the Boston uh, Garden, which were very, very, very basic and didn't have the modern amenities or the, the revenue streams. And so what I was able to do when I was talking to members of the Board of Governors, and I spent about two years on a plane, you know, I went to visit every member of the Board of Governors except one, and I would tell them all kinds of lies about me, you know, what a great guy I am. I tell them all kinds of nice things about the city of Ottawa, but I also educated them as to what was going on with arena design. So when we actually got to December of 1990, the fact that Hamilton had an existing arena that looked pretty much like an old, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, Boston Garden or Chicago Stadium, and that we had a design that Gino had come up with for the what was then called the Palladium, now Canadian Tire Center, with much, much stronger revenue streams. Uh, I think the Board of Governors really looked at Ottawa's bid and, and liked it. I guess uh, two follow-up questions I have. First, did you ever meet the guy from Hartford? No, he was Mr. Invisible. I don't think anybody ever saw that guy. I, I you know, I, I spent, like I said, Tim, I spent two years on a plane, you know, I, how many times did I go to Vancouver, Chicago, and L.A.? You know, Bruce McDonnell was the uh, owner of the L.A. Kings at that time. He was quite the character, by the way. And, uh, you know, I got to know the members of the board. You know, I had my own favorites. I, I was very fond of Mike Illich. Unfortunately, he's passed away now, but he was the owner of the Detroit Red Wings and later on the Detroit Tigers of Major League Baseball. I was very fond of Bill Wirtz, the owner of the Chicago team. You know, and Mr. Wirtz uh, would would tell me things like he'd say, you know, you have that accent, that Midwest accent, kind of like this. He would say things like, uh, you know, you want to know what that key is to running an NHL team, Bruce? Uh, you know, when you've got somebody who's been involved with NHL hockey as long as the Wirtz family is, you know, since the 1930s, it, it, it pays to pay attention. So I said, uh, what, what's the key, Mr. Wirtz? What is it, Bill? And he said, uh, you know, I tell them that, you know, some 15,000 season tickets, and if they don't, I tell them to hit the phones until they do. And what he meant by that uh, was that it was really important uh, to fill your building. If you fill your building in, in terms of the NHL, 
everything else will be easy. Sponsors will come, television deals will come, corporations will flock to the building. It's the fans that really own these teams, in my opinion. And I guess my second question comes with, in recent years more so than even the past, Hamilton has kind of been absorbed by the Toronto CMA with uh, <laughs> a lot of people just commuting into uh, Toronto and uh, oh, the yeah. Greater Gordo Horseshoe becoming just kind of a, a multi-core city instead of a monocore city sort of, right. sort of model. Do you think that will uh, heavily influence Hamilton getting a team in the future with uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs being more aggressive in protecting their exclusive zone? Well, you know, there's no question about that. Uh, you know, uh, I think the commissioner of the National Hockey League has said many, many times that uh, no team in the NHL has a has a veto. And I, I think, you know, obviously he's a lawyer. He, he knows Lex Scripta, which is the constitution of the NHL, better than, than, than the three of us. But having said that, I think there is an informal veto that both Buffalo and Toronto have. And I've talked to some of the uh, people who would like to bring a, a team to the Hamilton area, or for that matter, second team to the Toronto area. They kind of talked to me and asked me uh, for my uh, two cents. Probably that's what it's worth. Um, and I said, look, if you are serious about bringing a team to this area, first you have to make a deal with Buffalo, and second you have to make a deal with Toronto, because otherwise, uh, you know, like the NHL is a club. It's like you had, Tim and Taylor, you had a golf club, and there were two members in the golf club, you two. And I come along and I say to you, like Jim Balsilli did when he uh, wanted to bring a team uh, to Hamilton or to London or whatever, and I say to you, hey, I'd like to join your club. But you say, well, you know, I'm not sure we're expanding and I'm not sure you're the right guy for us. Well, if you don't let me in, I'm going to sue you. Now, probably you guys would not take kindly to that. I certainly wouldn't. And I, I did say to Jim Balsilli when he was talking about bringing another team into that area that, that suing your way into a club, especially when the top two guys in the NHL are both you know New York City lawyers, is probably a bad plan. You have to make a deal with Toronto and, and, and with Buffalo if you have any hope of bringing an NHL team to that area. Was, was it the exact same way with your group, given how close Montreal is to Ottawa? No. In the case of uh, Toronto and Buffalo, there is a, I think, yeah, it's, it's the borders of the city of Toronto plus 50 miles, the border uh, of the city of Buffalo plus 50 miles. That is the definition in Lex Scripta of your exclusion area. And Montreal is 120 miles, about, what is that, 200 uh, uh, kilometers from, from Ottawa. So, so their exclusion area did not uh, include Ottawa. But if you look at Los Angeles, Bruce McDowell and the LA Kings, obviously uh, the Anaheim Mighty Ducks, now just the Ducks were within that 50-mile exclusion zone. So uh, when Disney was, Mike Eisner was the CEO of Disney at the time, and when I talked to Mike about bringing in the National Hockey League team to uh, Anaheim, uh, you know, he had to make a deal first, at least in my opinion, with Bruce McDowell, which is what he did. And I also assumed that the mouse probably has a much better legal strategy team than maybe any other company on the planet. Well, you know, money talks, you know what walks. Exactly. In December of 1990, you and your group traveled to Palm Beach, Florida, along with the group representing Tampa Bay, when the NHL officially announced they had accepted Ottawa's bid for a franchise to begin play for the 92-93 season during a press conference at the Breakers Hotel. One person of note that, a comp that accompanied you and your group to Palm Beach was original Sens player Frank Finnegan. Majority of Sens fans today who don't know the original history of the Ottawa Senators would only know him from his retired number eight at the Canadian Tire Center and to a certain extent from the Twitter account Finnegan's Ghost. 
Talk to us a little bit about what kind of a person Frank was and what was the feeling like in the room when the NHL accepted the bid? Well, first, uh, uh, Frank, you know, was a colorful individual. He uh, had a, a, a storied uh, life. And, um, you know, even well into his 80s when I met him, uh, he had, you know, what are, I call hockey hands. If you've ever uh, uh, sh- shaken hands with a professional hockey player, you know, their hands, you know, uh, are really powerful. And even in his uh, late 80s, he still had that those hockey hands and a powerful handshake, and he was a wonderful man. Uh, you know, I asked Frank uh, to come to Palm Beach to campaign for a National Hockey League expansion franchise for the city of Ottawa, and uh, he was all over that. And uh, I asked his son, Frank Jr., to come as well, uh, you know, to take care of his dad and uh, and to be part of our, our group. And, uh, you know, the night before we actually got the, the franchise, uh, uh, Mr. Finnegan went up to John Ziegler, who was the president of the NHL at the time, soon to be replaced by Gary Bettner, the commissioner. And he went up to Mr. Ziegler with those big hockey hands, and he waves his, uh, his big finger in front of John's face and says, Mr. Ziegler, you give those boys in Ottawa a fair chance tomorrow. And John assured him that that, that he would. Um, there's a lot of respect in the NHL uh, for what's called the NHL family, and that means uh, former players, former owners, former general managers, uh, you know, uh, coaches. Uh, you, you know, they, they are honored and, and in fact uh, revered. And so I think uh, his uh, his uh, approach was uh, and part of being part of our group was really important. And I'm going to tell you a story. It kind of it makes me a little teary-eyed, but, um, you know, when we got the expansion franchise, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but when we actually, when the NHL made the announcement uh, that uh, went something like this, we are pleased and proud to announce today that the cities of Ottawa and Tampa have been accepted as conditional members of the National Hockey League. Uh, it was a wonderful moment, and I looked at, at Frank, and, you know, he was a bit teary-eyed, too. And, you know, when we came back to, to Ottawa after winning the expansion franchise, uh, we went through a season ticket campaign. I think we raised about $22.5 million in season ticket money uh, in 10 days. We sold out all of our entire arena. You know, so thank you, Mr. Works, for that advice. Um, but during the year where we, where we spent uh, time getting ready to play, that is uh, to play in October of 1992, we had a number of things that we had to do. Uh, we had to face down the provincial government, which had changed. Uh, uh, Liberal Premier uh, David Peterson had been defeated by NDP uh, uh, Premier Bob Ray and Mr. Ray and his government were opposed to the Ottawa Senators and wanted to see a, a franchise in Hamilton. So instead of getting the support that we had hoped to get from the government of Ontario, we got a lawsuit. Uh, just as a side note, uh, when Phil Esposito, who was representing, you guys know Phil Esposito, who he is, right? Of course. Yeah. So when Phil Esposito was representing the Tampa Bay Lightning, uh, which was the other uh, successful bid, you know, he calls me up after a few weeks and said, how's it going up there in Ottawa? I said, oh, it's going okay. And how's it going down there in, in Tampa? Oh, great. I got a call from the governor of the state of Florida congratulating us and asking what can he do, you know, to, to help uh, the Lightning get ready to play in 92. And he said, well, how was the reaction when you got back to Ontario? I said, well, yeah, we got a call too, but it was uh, from the governor of Ontario suing us. So, uh, you know, so we had a lot of work to do. But 
we went uh, uh, to something that's called the Ontario Municipal Board, which was an appeal board, where uh, we were able, after a 13-week hearing, I was on the stand for three and a half days being cross-examined by the Ontario government's lawyer, we were able to actually beat the Ontario government and Mr. Ray and his people and get the Palladium, i.e. the Canadian Tire Centre, approved, which was a, a wonderful step forward for us. But that meant we could uh, qualify for uh, unconditional membership in December of, I guess, 1991, so basically a year later. When we finally did that, I think it was December 19th, 1991, I turned to Randy and said, Randy, you've got to uh, call uh, you know, Frank uh, and make sure that he knows that we've gone from conditional members to unconditional members and that we've done it. So Randy immediately calls uh, the hospital because Frank was in the hospital at that time. and. Um, and and um, and he, he he couldn't speak to Frank, but he did speak to Frank Jr. And Frank Jr. later on told me that he went into the room where his dad effectively was was dying, and uh, he said uh, to his dad, "Dad, they they they've done it." And uh, Frank gave a thumbs up, and he dictated to his son a letter, which I have here, congratulating me. He was too weak to write it, but he was able to sign it. I have it on my wall. Unfortunately, you guys can't see it right now. Uh, and after he had signed that, he looked at his son, he turned over, and he died. And, um, you know, Frank Jr. said that that was Dad's last mission on Earth. Once that was done, he was ready to go. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, moving on to, I guess, some of my questions, and they may be a bit more kind of weird analytical in nature. One of the recurring themes in uh, your book, uh, Don't Stand Down, I, I butchered the title, but whatever, is NIMBYism in Ottawa. Can you kind of go over that and how you think that even plays into development decisions in the city of Ottawa today? Yeah, well, NIMBY stands for Not in My Backyard, and the, the book is called Don't Back Down. It's uh, I wrote that on the 25th anniversary of the team, and it's got four themes in it. It's got the original story of the founding of the Ottawa Senators. It's got a lot about the NHL. It's got a lot about real estate, and of course, it's got my story in there, too. My wife told me, oh, Bruce, don't put your personal story in there. Nobody wants to read it. But it turns out that tens of thousands of people did want to read it. So uh, people are curious to, as to why uh, entrepreneurs do what they do and why they're so crazy. And so I kind of went into that a little bit in, in Don't Back Down. Uh, Tim, what was the question you asked? Can you go into more detail oh, yeah, about NIMBYism in Ottawa? Yeah, the NIMBY thing. Well, you know, NIMBY is, is, is everywhere. It's not just Ottawa. I mean, trust me, it exists in Duncan, B.C. It exists in Cali. Well, it certainly it exists, exists in, here. Oh, everywhere. And, and what it is, is it's a, a, a people are, you know, people talk a good game, but people really don't like change. So, so Tim, let's say uh, your neighbor, uh, you know, uh, maybe he or she there, nice people, but they decide to add a basement apartment to their to their house, you know, because they may need a little bit of extra income. Young people like my daughter bought a house, I helped her buy a house, and she has a, an apartment in, in the basement of her house, and she has a very nice tenant there, but that monthly amount that she gets from her tenant does help her and her husband, uh, you know, pay their mortgage. So whether you're a young person or you're an older person like me, having a little bit of extra income can really be helpful. But if you're living next door and, you, you, you know, you you find out your neighbor's putting a basement apartment in, you think, oh my gosh, you know, maybe that person might be somebody I don't like. They might uh, be not like me, you know. People are afraid of change. And so um, it, it's a reaction. It's based on two very powerful emotions, greed and fear. So in the case of, uh, of the Canadian Tire Center, what happened was uh, Bob Ray and his government 
uh, they opposed uh, the rezoning because they thought, you know, gee, if, if they can't get the, the, the rezoning done, uh, they won't be able to build their new stadium. They won't be able to become unconditional members of the National Hockey League. And, uh, and, and therefore, uh, you know, the expansion franchise might go to Hamilton, which I thought was total uh, nonsense. But uh, that was at least the, the theory that uh, the government was operating on. So that gave, uh, you know, encouragement to uh, the, a number of people who I would consider, and you probably would too, uh, who are NIMBYs. And there was one farmer in particular, I won't mention his name, it doesn't matter. He went to the OMB hearing every day for 13 and a half weeks during the summer. I, I don't know how a farmer gets to spend 13 and a half weeks in the middle of, of, of summer, uh, you know, at, at a... At a, at a hearing, but he was, uh, you know, he, he he was raising issues about traffic and other things, uh, and trying to convince the uh, three panel members that that this was a, a project that should not go forward. And uh, fortunately for us, uh, the uh, panel members, the chair of the Ontario Municipal Board hearing, uh, and the two others, uh, did not agree with him or with the Ontario government, and they approved the construction of the Palladium. But what I, the reason I'm telling you this is NIMBYism is a funny, very funny thing. About ten, oh, Yes, it was, in fact, 10 years after the building, the Canadian Tire Centre opened, uh, the CBC, uh, Canadian Broadcast uh, Corporation, went out to interview this particular individual. And uh, I, you know, I, I, I was watching TV. It was a very random thing. And there he is on the 10th anniversary of this farmer who had been probably one of the most vocal NIMBYites uh, in the area, being interviewed. And uh, this young woman is out there you know, with her cameraman, and, and uh, she's saying to him, uh, um, you know, uh, so you were an opponent uh, of, the, um, of the Palladium back in the day. How, how are you feeling on the 10th anniversary of the, uh, of the building? And he said, oh, no, 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 I was never an opponent. And you could see, you could see the, the interviewer, the young woman uh, who was interviewing him, sort of, you know, do a double take. Uh, well, yeah, you were there every day for 13 and a half weeks. You know, you opposed them and you said, that, oh, no, 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 you, you have it wrong. I was always a supporter. And then he went on to say, you know, his farm gate marketing business had boomed since the Canadian Tire Center had opened. You know, lots more people are driving by his farm. He has farm gate marketing and, and his sales have been booming. So they've been a good neighbor and so so even though you might get a little bit of uh, pushback from NIMBYs uh, if you keep at it for you know as long as we did uh, eventually you could bring them on site mm -hmm. yeah that's definitely something that uh, a lot of developers are hoping for I know it's definitely one of the topics of my research is as an urban economist next point reading through the book there's and you already mentioned bumps and seats there's a lot of funny uh, metric funny metric name yeah. that came out in uh, sports development which are your favorites? Um, well, I, I didn't know what BIMS meant, bums in the seats, uh, so I learned learned that. It, it, you know, but, but for me, you know, owning an, an NHL team, I think the biggest surprise to me was the fact that I felt uh, a little bit like a feudal lord where you own people, right? You're like you own the player, you own the player's contract, you take his life, basically his career in your hands. Um, and, and I was actually a little uncomfortable with that idea uh, of owning, even if they're very well paid, they're still serfs. And, uh, and, and, you know, some of the other owners, Tim, were, you know, were quite comfortable with the idea of, you know, trading people. Uh, it's not exactly the slave trade, but it certainly felt a little bit like that. So that was, to me anyway, a very strange feeling. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't think I've ever told anybody that before, so there you go. Oh, we got something new here today. I think you might have. <laughs> After all the years and hard work put into the re- revival of the Senators, the big night finally arrives. October 8th, 1992, opening night at the Ottawa Civic Centre versus the Montreal Canadiens. Outside of the game itself, which Ottawa won 5-3, the night was noted for its pre-game celebrations and having then-unknown Alas set singing the National Anthem, which she would later do again for Game 4 of the 2007 Stanley Cup Finals. What kind of emotions were you feeling that night, giving all the work you'd put in, and in retrospect, how special was it having Alanis there that night, given how successful she would become a few years later? Well, she was our honorary captain, you know, when she was 17. She was a cute young woman. You know, she came with us to our first draft in Montreal. We had a caravan uh, bike via rail to to Montreal. She was on that uh, with us. And uh, I think she had just cut one of her first albums, which had become enormously successful. And she was our honorary captain. So it it really meant a a lot to me and I think to the fans that she, she was with us. You know, it's all about building a close relationship with your fans. Uh, I've never believed, by the way, that um, that uh, owners actually own these franchises. They hold them in trust for their fans. One quick question I want to ask about the pregame celebrations. A few years ago when the Vegas Golden Knights were an expansion team, they were known for their celebrations, which also included Roman soldiers and just the overall presentation. Given that the Senators had done that 25 years prior, did you kind of look at that and be like, oh, come on, like this has already been done before? Well, you know, uh, if you're successful, people will copy you. If you're not successful, obviously they won't. So, uh, you know, that did not bother me at all. Uh, You know, I still have somewhere in my archives, uh, you know, a nice note for Mike Eisner at at Disney. I sent him a, you know, back in those days, I guess it would have been like a, you know, a videotape. I sent him a videotape of uh, the opening night celebrations, you know, and, and I got a very nice note back from Mike saying it was an impressive opening night. Uh, you know, when you talk to the uh, president and CEO of Disney and, and, and you know, he, he, he gives you that kind of compliment, that, that says something. And, and I think, uh, you know, uh, the Golden Knights, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. Awesome. Actually, kind of jumping off of that, uh, with the Senators uh, lately having a lot of celebrations, especially for players retiring or players coming back, do you think the Senators over the years have maintained a strong ability to keep fans engaged in the building? I, I would say the answer to that is probably no at this stage. Um, uh, you, you know, the uh, the Ottawa Senators is before COVID-19 has, I think, the smallest uh, front office staff. Uh, it's really a skeleton staff. And, and some of the programs that... that that I put in place, you know, the Ottawa Senators Foundation, which is a charity for children, uh, you know, the Junior Fan Club, and some of the other long-term investments that we made in our fan base, some of that has uh, kind of a little bit fallen by the wayside, uh, you know, due to budget cuts. And I I think those budget cuts are really uh, having an impact on the, like I said earlier in this interview, on the love affair between the team and its its fans. And I, I, I don't know really what to do about that. You know, you asked me what it was like on opening night in October of 19, yeah, 1992. And, and um, you know, Cyril Leader, Randy Sexton, and I, uh, we stood at gate one and we shook hands with fans as they came into the building. Uh, you know, having an owner in the building is really, really, really important. It doesn't matter whether it's Major League Baseball uh, or National Football League football or NBA activities. Having a, uh, an owner, you know, living, breathing every 
every moment, uh, you know. Uh, if you think about Mike Illich, he was absolutely beloved by his players in Detroit, and he just bled for that team. Same thing with Bill Wirtz in Chicago. And, and players, coaches, trainers, uh, you know, fans, sponsors, they all know that. And the fact that our, the current owner in, in Ottawa, I think, can only work in Canada uh, for 15 days a year because I think he's in a tax haven, uh, Bermuda or Bahamas or whatever it is, I, I can't remember, Barbados, I think. You know, I think that really hurts, uh, uh, you know, the team and, and its relationship with the, with, with the entire stakeholder group. Well, I know talking about sports owners, especially in the United States, one of the most well-known owners, I think for his interactions with not only the fans, but how open he is with the media, is Mark Cuban for the Dallas Mavericks. No question. No question. And, and you know, it, 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 by the way, it's not just true of, 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 of professional sports franchises. Uh, you know, Taylor, it's it's true of, you know, every, you can't run a shoe store. You can't run a restaurant. Try and run a pub where the owner never shows up. You, you, you're, you're not going to be successful. Having an owner in the house really makes a difference, a difference to everybody, the entire stakeholder group. One of my best friends uh, owns a very, or at least until recently, owned a, a very, very uh, successful pub. It's been around for, for a very long time and he's in the pub saying hi to people making sure uh, things are running properly and the staff is happy and the customers are happy there's there's just no replacement for for that so bruce following the sens inaugural season you announced your resignation from the ottawa centers as well as terrace investments in august of 1993 following your announcement you would later join the canadian football league's ottawa rough riders as part owner and chairman from what i was reading regarding your resignation it was due to the financial strain put on from completing the payment for the team as well as the building of the Palladium. Overall, what were the reasons for your resignation from the Sens and how did you become involved with the Rough Riders? So what, what happened was um, when we got the, the franchise, the um, Canadian dollar was trading around 90 cents to the U.S. dollar. And all of our contracts were denominated in Canadian uh, currency. The only contracts that we had, uh, player contracts, were in U.S. dollars, were for players that we traded, uh, you know, who came from, say, the New York Rangers with a U.S. dollar contract, which obviously we had to pay. So in 1992-93, our budget for our players was $6.5 million Canadian dollars, uh, and that included the both the big and the little team, the American Hockey League affiliate. So it was six and a half million Canadian uh, dollars, and uh, even though we were playing at that time in the Civic Center, which was only about ten or twelve thousand uh, seats, uh, we were able to make about nine point six or nine point eight million dollars in earnings that year. So we were very profitable in the second smallest NHL building. But what happened was the NHL, the NHLPA, uh, basically the Players Association, I think <laughs> the NHL's lunch, uh, they insisted on uh, denominating all of the player contracts, even for players playing in Canada, in U.S. dollars. And that was uh, the death knell, I think, for the Quebec Nordiques, the Winnipeg Jets, and almost for the Ottawa Senators, and certainly for me. So our payroll went from $6.5 million Canadian dollars to $84 million in a very, very short period of time. Just try that in your pub or your shoe store, right? Good luck with that. And uh, so so what had happened was we had a, a couple of setbacks. That was certainly one of them. The other was that we had to make uh, an arrangement with the Ontario Municipal Board. We wanted the entire 600 acres that we bought rezoned 
100 acres we would keep for the building and 500 acres where the uh, value of the land hopefully would go up, we would sell it and that would be a, you know, a big additional capital injection for, um, for our company. That didn't happen. Mr. Ray and his people managed to uh, cut us off at the knees. So we took a few financial hits. One, the payroll ran out of control. Two, uh, we didn't get the extra 500 acres of land rezoned. That took another generation, 25 years. And the third thing was that Mr. Ray forced us uh, to uh, to pay for the uh, Palladium interchange. It's still, I think, to this day, the only interchange on a 400 series highway in uh, Ontario that was paid for by the private sector. And uh, so we took a $30 million write down on the interchange. We took a $50 million write down on the value of our land. And then we took a huge hit on the payroll side. So I, I, I knew. Uh, probably even on opening day, boys, I, I knew that my days as an NHL owner was probably limited. One thing that was brought up when you were talking about the death knell for the Quebec Nordiques and the Winnipeg Jets, and I know that Gary Bettman gets a lot of criticism up here in Canada for the relocation of those teams and, of course, with the Southern team struggling, given that I think he came up with a difference in the money to save teams in Calgary and Edmonton and Vancouver, do you feel if he had not put that in place that Ottawa would have joined Quebec and Winnipeg as an American team? Yeah, I, I do. You know, uh, uh, you know, a lot of Canadians are, are not maybe fond of Gary Bettman. Uh, I, I understand their concerns and, and arguments, but... But in, at least in terms of Ottawa, uh, Mr. Bettman went to bat for, for the Senators. When they went, they went bankrupt in the mid-2000s, and as a result, I had to, you know, restart my career. And, uh, you know, I was 54 years of age. I'd had a wonderful career, lots of ups, and all of a sudden, oops, there I am, you know, restarting at age 54, not at 34, but at 54. Um, but Gary definitely uh, went to bat for the Ottawa Senators. He, want, uh, he wanted the Sens, uh, you know, to stay. He wanted an NHL team in Canada's capital city. And, and, and you know, I, I think if Gary were to go back uh, to the time where, where Quebec went to Colorado, you know, maybe he might have he might have um, uh, done something different. He certainly stepped in in the case of Ottawa, and of course, uh, Phoenix. Uh, the Coyotes wouldn't be in, in Phoenix today, except for Gary Bettman saying, "We're not putting our franchises on." In 2012, you received the highest honor in Ottawa sports by way of being inducted into the Ottawa Sports Hall of Fame along with Randy Sexton and Cyril Leader. The Ottawa Sports Hall of Fame has inducted a number of significant people over the years in involved with Ottawa sports, including Frank Finnegan, Brian Kilray, and Frank Clare. For yourself, when did you learn that you were being inducted into the hall, and did your induction feel that much more significant knowing that Cyril and Leader were being inducted along with you? Yeah, I think it, it made, um, it, you know, uh, you know, I've never asked for uh, public recognition. One of the things, uh, uh, you know, we talked about earlier in this interview was uh, some of the things that, that I found a little uncomfortable. Uh, one of them was, you know, as I mentioned, uh, you know, owning players. Uh, uh, you know, the other was owning a franchise in the sense that I, I really believe that owners hold it in trust for, for the fans. Um, so I didn't really want, you know, the kind of media attention that I got. I didn't realize this is my naivete 
it's on me. The amount of focus and intention that you get as an NHL owner in Canada, uh, to me, that was not something that I, I would have sought the spotlight, you know, uh, for. And, and I just wasn't prepared for that. I thought, you know, we'd have a publicist, we'd have a public relations group, uh, I'd have a president of the team, in this case, Cyril Leader, uh, you know, we'd have a coach, we'd have a general manager, that the owner can take a step back into the shadows. That did not happen. And, uh, you know, so, so being inducted into the Auto Sports Hall of Fame was a wonderful honor, and I certainly appreciate it. But again, to go into the public eye, you know, I have a very private life. Now, I'm doing this interview with you guys, but, you know, I don't spend a lot of time going back over, over history. To me, now it's ancient history. And I think for most people, if you're going to be successful as an individual, I'm not talking about financial success, I just mean a happy person and, and a person who has a, a good family life. You have to live in the present. You can't live in the past. I, I think that's a mistake. So other than doing this, this podcast with you guys, uh, you know, I probably won't talk about this again. You know, I am 68, so who knows? Sticking with your induction to the Ottawa Sports Hall of Fame, I know the Ottawa Senators have the Ring of Honor that they introduced a few years ago. Now, at the time of this recording, only one member of the Ottawa Senators is a part of that, the late Brian Murray. Do you think that we'll ever see the day that you yourself is inducted into the Ring of Honor? Well, that's not up to me uh, to decide. And, uh, you know, these honors are, are you know, I, I do appreciate it. Uh, maybe I sound like I don't, but I, I do. It means a lot to me and, and to be thanked. You know, there are still people who, mostly older people now, who will come up to me on the street if they recognize me. I am a lot older, obviously. Uh, and they'll say thank you for bringing the team back. And I, I appreciate that. You know, and, you know, I went... To, to a game uh, earlier this year where we could go to games and uh, a fan from Germany came up to me. I don't know how he recognized me, but he did. And we become like email buddies, you know, and uh, he read, don't back down. Uh, his, his English is as good as yours or mine. And, um, and, and you know, I, I, I do enjoy that fan interaction on a one-on-one -on -one basis. But the idea of, you know, being trotted out publicly to, to do, you know, this kind of thing, uh, you know, that that really wasn't me. I, I should have been a university professor. I was pretty trained <laughs> to be a university professor. Look, look at the career I actually ended up with. You probably got the better end of the stick on it. Let's stay looking at academia nowadays. Well, I don't know, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I was a very shy person. And, uh, you know, the first interview I did, uh, there were lots of ums and ahs and, you know, whatever. And, and when the first person came up to me and wanted my autograph, I went, you, you want my autograph? Yeah, now I would imagine that's such a weird thing for you, given that, I mean, you haven't been involved with the Ottawa Senators since the early 90s. And given that, as you're saying, that fan from Germany recognized you and you became email pals, I can only imagine that must still be a weird thing for you if you go to games that people end up recognizing you. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And, and uh, you know, that's never going to go away. You know, however long I live, you know, I'll always be the founder of the Ottawa Centers. And I, I know, no one loves the team more than I do. Yeah. Well, one thing I, and even reading through your book and watching old interviews, and one thing I really appreciate about you, Bruce, is that for most people, when they do something as significant as founding a sports team, that's the one thing that they say, yes, that's the one thing that I will always be remembered for. But from what I was seeing, your attitude was always more of founding the Ottawa Centers is just one of the things that I did. Is that something that um, consciously you were thinking of or is that just your personality? Like, yeah, it's great, but that's just one of the things that I did. Uh, Tay, I, I really appreciate you saying that because you, you, you got it right. Like, I, I, um, 
you know, I'm doing some things now in terms of the coaching that I do, real estate investment and, and business coaching that I do, that is, is changing lives. And, uh, you know, I, I help people uh, take care of themselves and their families for three generations by learning to be real estate investors uh, and uh, to run their own personal business for life. Um, and, and some of the work that I'm doing is really biting. You know, you can see it. I, I, I'm now coaching thousands of people across Canada, the United States, in Australia, and uh, in Sweden, of all places. And and so the opportunity to to give back. You know, um, I, I, you know, I think about it. I've been a university professor. I've been a hockey guy. I've been a real estate developer. Uh, you know, now I'm a realtor and 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 um, and a coach. And, and so. You know, uh, especially now in COVID nineteen, on like on the long weekend, Easter long weekend, Good Friday morning, I woke up and I thought, you know, I, I, I should reboot a course that I taught at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University and also at the Telford School of Management at the University of Ottawa. Uh, it was called Entrepreneurial Culture. Uh, so I updated the course and I launched it three weeks later. It's called Pivot, and I, I'm teaching people to how to how to build successful businesses. And today, um, you know, with like I said earlier in the interview, with seven million Canadians unemployed, that's an incredible number. Forty million Americans lost their jobs in two months. Um, so it's my chance, in a small way, to you know teach people how to run their own personal business for life, so they they never get laid off again. So Bruce, after everything that we've got a chance to talk with you about today, I feel the best way to close out the questions is by bringing up the fact that you wrote a book about the sins titled Don't Back Down. Now, I got a chance to read through some of the book in preparation for this interview, and I actually want to thank you for sending me the PDF copy of it. And I actually found myself not being able to put it down once I started reading. Now, given I'm only about 125, 150 pages into the book, and I was reading some of it last night, how long did the book project start from start to finish? And... Can you tell the back? Can you tell us the backstory behind the title of the book? Yeah. So, yes, I, I will, and uh, I'm glad you asked that, Taylor. So, "Don't Back Down" is a riff on Tom Petty's song, um, you know, of, of, of the same name, and that was our theme song when we were trying to bring back the Ottawa Centers. You know, we wouldn't back down. And there were some down moments as we tried to uh, bring the Ottawa Senators back, a team that had not played in nearly 60 years. Um, and, and I'll tell you a story that I, I, I really think I should share with your listeners. And that is the story that happened uh, uh, the night before we actually got the team. There was a, about a 600-person NHL family dinner, you know, one of those fancy uh, dinners. And there were lots of competitors there, you know, looking for NHL expansion franchises. Portland, Seattle, Milwaukee, Hamilton, Ottawa, Tampa Bay, uh, uh, St. Petersburg, uh, probably a couple I don't remember. Um, and so all the bidders were there, and all the NHL members of the Board of Governors were there, the NHL family was there. And everybody was, you know, lobbying, you know, telling the members of the Board of Governors why, St. Petersburg should get a team, why Milwaukee should have a team, why Hamilton should have a team, and of course, why Ottawa should have a team. And um, about halfway through the dinner, one of the members of the Board of Governors comes up to me, and he puts his face about six or eight inches away from mine, and he says, Mr. Farston, there's just one thing I want to I want to tell you. And I said, oh, okay, well, what is it? He said, you will never, ever, ever get an NHL franchise in Ottawa. 
and he was wagging his finger at me. And I went, well, you know, by that time we had bought seven and a half million dollars worth of land. We'd spent two and a half or three million dollars on the bid. We had uh, sold 15,000 uh, priority registration numbers for season tickets. We had 500 corporate sponsors. You know, I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, I've just spent the last four years of my life and, and it's going down the toilet. I'm going to have to find a new hometown if we don't win this thing. And what I said to him is, I said, you know, I think the NHL should give te teams expansion franchises to cities and people who, who truly love, uh, uh, you know, and appreciate NHL hockey and will cherish the franchise, will take care of it. And that, sir, would be us. He said, well, you heard what I have to say. You will never get a team in Ottawa. And he walks away. So I went back to, to our table and I sat down. You know, my face was white as a ghost. And, um, and you know, and people came up to me. They said, are you okay, Bruce? And you know, you guys are men, so you know what happens when you're under a lot of stress. You know, your voice might go up an octave or two. So I remember uh, some guys coming up to me, Randy, Cyril, others, and saying, Bruce, what's wrong? Everything is, are you okay? And I said, oh, yeah, everything's good. Yeah, fine. You know, and, and you know, obviously it wasn't. And finally, Norm Green, who was the owner of the Minnesota North Stars, came over to see me. He was a friend of mine. And Norm turned to me and said, you know, what's wrong? And so I did tell Norm what had happened. Well, he said, look, that's one vote you're not going to get. Get that schmucky look off your face, kid, and get out there and hustle. I went, my gosh, you know, Norm's right. I said, thank you, Norm. I hear you. So I, I continued to, uh, uh, you know, lobby, not that one governor, but the others I did. And, and so the next morning we got up early. Uh, it was uh, 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock in the morning. We go down, and uh, this is the Breakers Hotel in, 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 in Palm Beach. Um, and they're the members of the Board of Governors having, having uh, breakfast. And uh, I look around the room, and the only other person in the room was Phil Esposito doing the same thing I was, sitting down, having coffee with one governor, saying, you know, reminding him of all the good things uh, that Ottawa's done to earn this franchise. And I look around, where's Hamilton? Where's Milwaukee? Where's St. Petersburg? You know, where's Seattle? Where's Portland? Where's Houston? Houston was there. They were, nobody was there. And I thought, oh, good. So... The last thing that board, members of the Board of Governors saw before they closed the doors uh, to decide where to put a team, um, or their teams, uh, was my face saying, go Ottawa. Remember the Sens, bring back the Senators. And the second last thing they saw was Phil Esposito saying, hey, we're here for the Tampa Bay Lightning. We're, we're, we're your next uh, franchise. Um, and, and nobody else was there. So, um, uh, you know, at that point, we didn't know if we would be successful or not. And so we waited throughout the morning and, uh, at, you know, the stress level was very high. I, I won't take uh, up too much more time, but I'll finish the story if that's okay with you guys. Yep. Okay. Um, so, so uh, you know, so around noon, the pressure is getting, I said, oh my God, they're going to be in there all day. So I told my staff that I'm going to go for a run. I like to run. And so I went jogging, and around uh, 50 minutes later, I'm coming back, and there in front of the Breakers Hotel is uh, uh, Connie Neal, who was my executive assistant, and Cyril, and a couple other. Hurry up, hurry up! You know, they're waving me in, so I run a little faster, and I said, what's up? Oh, the NHL's made a decision. I said, okay, what decision? We don't know. We've been told to go up into our suite and wait, and they're going to come and collect us at once. So I go up into the suite. I don't have time for a shower. I just kind of towel off and change into my suit, and NHL security comes, and, and they collect us, and, and they take us down a back staircase into the basement of the Breakers Hotel, and the Breakers Hotel looks a lot like uh, the Overlook Hotel in, in The Shining. I don't know if you guys ever saw the movie The Shining with Jack Nicholson. 
but it's kind of a scary hotel. And there we are in the basement, myself, Cyril Leader, Randy Sexton, Gary Burns, Jim Durrell, who was the mayor of uh, Ottawa at the time, Elliot Richardson, uh, uh, former U.S. Attorney General. Uh, we're all there in the basement where the prep kitchen is. The pipes are leaking, the garbage everywhere. I'm expecting rats and Jack Nicholson with an axe at any minute. And uh, I thought, holy smokes, looks like we have not been successful. So I turned to our group and I said, look, guys, it, it doesn't look uh, very hopeful. Uh, you know, we couldn't have done any more. We have worked as hard as we possibly can for as long as we can. If we're not successful today, we are going to thank the NHL for the opportunity to, to bid. And then we're going to hold our own press conference. And at that press conference, we're going to say, look, we weren't successful today. Partly, I think, because uh, the provincial government of Mr. Ray has opposed the building of the Palladium. We're going to go back to Ontario. We're going to beat the government at their own game. We're going to get that approved. And next year, we're coming back to these winter meetings, and we're going to get our franchise 12 months from now. That's what we're going to say. So with that, we, we prepare for the worst possible news. Um, so a few minutes later, uh, NHL security takes us up to the... Uh, Board of Governors, where the room was, and we enter into the Board of Governors room, and there's Marcel Lebou, who was the owner of the Quebec Nordiques, and he comes up to me and he says, uh, Felicitations on me. He was a big guy. He gives me a big hug. I go, oh, yeah, okay, thanks. And I, I thought he was just congratulating us on a good try. I get to the front of the room, and there's John Ziegler, uh, the president of the National Hockey League. There's Phil Esposito. And I look down on a piece of paper, it says, the NHL is pleased and proud to announce that conditional memberships have been granted to the cities of Ottawa, Tampa. And I went, oh my God, we just won this thing. And what had happened was the NHL decided to put the winners in the basement to keep them away from the media, and the losers were upstairs. But I didn't know that. So, you know, you go from the depths of depression, I guess, to the heights of ecstasy, and, and I turned to my guys, and we just go, oh my God, we just won this thing. Um, <clears throat> so we go back to Ottawa, we do our season ticket campaign, and about three weeks later, I get a call from that member of the Board of Governors, and he said to me, Bruce, do you remember what I said to you the night before you got the team? I said, I certainly do. I'll go to my grave remembering it. You'll never, ever, ever get an NHL franchise in Ottawa. He said, me and two of the other members of the board uh, decided to go up to every single bidder, Houston, Portland, Seattle, Hamilton, Tampa Bay, St. Petersburg, etc., Ottawa, and say exactly that thing. You will never, ever, ever get a franchise in uh, Houston or Hamilton. We wanted to see how the bidders would react. And the only two bidders that kept on going were you and Phil Esposito. And that's who we gave franchises to because we trusted you. I'm actually really surprised that Hamilton backed down. Um, uh, Mr. Joyce, who was representing the Hamilton bid, uh, he was, you know, the Tim Hortons uh, donut king, uh, got mad and left. And so did Milwaukee and Houston and Seattle and Portland. Everybody got mad. Phil didn't. I didn't. We just got back to work. So it turns out, boys, they don't give franchises to cities. They give them to people. I guess if there's an ownership certificate, that is the reality of the situation. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so I, I just wanted to share that with you and your listeners. Oh, and one quick comment from reading the book. I can definitely tell that you have a PhD, it's structured like an academic would. Take that as you will. <laughs> I, I think you just you just punctured my balloon. <laughs> I mean, I'm one as well, so it felt really natural to read.
Oh, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. At least I hope you did. Mm. So, Tim, do you have any more comments you want to make for Bruce before we head off into the close for another episode? Uh, no, no, I think uh, we've made good time on this episode. Absolutely. Bruce, we cannot thank you enough for joining us, and I speak for every Senators fan when I say that we owe you the biggest of debt and everything you did for bringing back the Ottawa Senators. We greatly appreciate that. Now, before we let you go, we always get our guests to plug their social media. Now, for our listeners, if they hear this and want to reach out to you and say, hey, this was a great interview, or they just want to give their comments, where can they find you on social media? Uh, so I'm on Twitter, at Prof Bruce, so at Prof Bruce. That's my Twitter handle. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I think it's the same handle, Prof Bruce. Um, on Facebook, I think it's probably the same handle. Um, and, and I have a website, BruceMFirestone.com. You have to put the M in there, BruceMFirestone.com. But anybody who wants to reach out to me uh, to talk uh, about the Senators, to talk about the NHL, uh, to talk about uh, the coaching that I do, and some of the things that I do, uh, if they want to read Don't Back Down, they can find me and they certainly can email me if they want to, Bruce dot firestone f-i-r-e-s-t-o-n-e at century 21.ca and that's the numbers two one awesome thank you so much bruce i really enjoyed this i hope you did too boys oh we had a bunch of fun all right see ya see ya see ya you know tim that was a great interview that we got a chance to talk with bruce firestone i feel like i learned a lot we did now what were some of the things that you took away from this interview today tim well i think one of the big ones is once an academic, always an academic. But I mean that in a great way because it's very detailed and uh, it seems someone who's very complete at looking at the world, mm -hmm. a complete way of looking at the world. And honestly, it was just a, a fun chat. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I hope you've enjoyed it because believe me, Tim and I love recording it for you. You can find us on the National Podcast Network, nationalpodcast.network. We can find our page on soundcloud itunes and google play we're also on twitter at third line plug is our twitter handle tim is at m9 honey badger and i'm at great white gipster gr8 w-y-t-e gipster if you want to shoot us an email to talk about our interview today with dr bruce firestone you can shoot us an email third line plug sensecast at gmail.com until next time guys i am your host taylor gibson and this has been tim jensen go sense guys Woo! So long, my time here is up. They're going home!